Our next start sub sit. So Jessica, I'm going to be asking you for Dan's response. Okay. So start sub sit, different types of pressure defense, a one, two, two, a two, two, one, or tagging up. I think tagging up is great. I think there's some. He doesn't like it. He wanted, he wanted it, but he doesn't like it. I'm trying to yeah. be nice right now. I'm trying to be yeah. nice. <laughs> Hi, I'm Dan Krikorian. And I'm Patrick Carney, and welcome to Sloppy Glass, exploring basketball's best ideas, strategies, and coaches from around the world. Today, we're excited to welcome the wife and husband coaching duo of Florida International University Women's Basketball, head coach Jessica Burks-Wiley, and assistant Dan Wendt. Both coaches are here today to discuss the importance of emotional IQ for both players and staffs, and we talk attacking zones, and full court pressure during the always fun start, sub, or sit. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to both the podcast and our Sunday morning newsletter, where you can access weekly detailed tactical breakdowns and find out more about SG+, a resource and coaching community current members are calling the best platform to learn, grow, and connect with other coaches. Visit sloppingglass.com for more information today. And now, please enjoy our conversation with coaches Jessica Burks-Wiley and Dan Wendt. Coaches, thanks so much for joining us this morning. We are really excited to talk to you both. Thank you so much for having us. I'm really glad we were able to finally link up together. Yeah, I've personally heard every podcast. Love what you guys do. I'm lucky enough to know a couple of guys you've had on here personally and absolutely love what you guys do and honored to be here. Thank you both very much. Thank you both. Yeah. And we're really excited to speak to you both. And we think this is going to be a really fun and interesting conversation. You are both on the same staff, but you also are married. So this just gives it a fun dynamic to discuss a lot of these things with you both. So Jessica, we'll start with you on this first question and emotional intelligence or emotional IQ, both as a coach. And then as it relates to your players and how you help your players. And so the process for you as a coach personally, understanding emotional intelligence and then how you try to then transfer that to your players. That's a great question. So I know for, you know, myself, understanding uh, players where they are emotionally and, you know, developing that emotional intelligence when it comes to that kid it starts pretty early for us in the recruiting process. You know, I am incredibly involved in the recruiting process from the beginning because, you know, having the fortune in the last seven or eight years of my career to be an assistant coach, I know how important that head coach and player dynamic is. You know, I've been places where you love the kid, you bring her in and then the head coach and her, it just doesn't work out and neither party is wrong. It just ended up not being a great fit. And so because of that, that's something I always try to dive in early as a head coach now of like, hey, let me tap into this kid, see where she is emotionally, see what she may need, you know, over her course of her time here. And once, you know, as a coach, I kind of feel like, hey, this is something that we can manage or something that I'm equipped to do. I'm happy to proceed with that player. But once they're here, it's definitely something that as a head coach, I have to be incredibly tapped into. But you definitely have to have a staff as well that is understanding of that. Because as a head coach, you're pulled in a million different directions. You know, I remember my mentor telling me all the time, like basketball ends up being about 10% of what you actually get to do as a head coach. And I remember laughing, like, not me. And I'm like, God, they're so right now, <laughs> you know? And so being able to have a staff that, like you said, has that emotional challenge to be able to come into me at times and be like, hey, 
you know, someone's still struggling right now. You may need to put your arm around her. You may need to pour into her a little bit more today or, you know, hey, over the course of this week, we've got to kind of ramp up a little bit more encouragement, still make them better, still, you know, push them out of their comfort zones. But hey, we may need to add a little bit more positivity and encouragement during that process. And so it's incredibly important, like I said, to have a staff that understands that and, you know, is capable of doing it, but also think having a staff that respects that. You know, I've definitely, you know, had the fortune of being at a couple of different stops in my career. And I've been a part of staffs where that wasn't a thing, where it was like, oh, they just need to figure it out. They need to suck it up. You know, you hear it all the time. This generation, they're so different. They're soft, you know, and I'm like, I don't think it's necessarily that. I do think this is a generation where if they don't think you care about them outside of basketball, they don't care about what you know, and they're not going to do what you ask. They are very independent in that way. And so as coaches, we have to make a decision. You know, do we want to be archaic and it doesn't matter if I don't know that you're struggling today, you need to do what I say, or do we adapt to the human beings that we're coaching right now? And if I can jump in, you know, going back to the recruiting process, I think now more than ever, it's important to understand the relationship the player has with their own parents. And recruiting the parents now is huge, especially for us. We want to make sure that everybody fits what we're trying to do. And then also just once they're here, doing as many check-ins as possible. You know, one way to show that you care is to prove it and actually go through. And, you know, even if you have an off day, hey, what's going on with such and such class? Or, you know, I saw you were kind of limping a little bit the other day. You know, have you seen Kelsey, our trainer yet? You know, just checking in on a daily basis goes a long way. And that can kind of help guide where you guys need to go. Jessica, when having these recruiting conversations and if there's maybe like a red flag in the sense that is it something that maybe we should avoid this player? They're not really going to be a good fit or is it just, okay, when they get here, we just got to be aware and we got to be ready to work on this. I think it's a little bit of both. You know, I definitely have a couple of things that are non-negotiables, selfish, narcissist, you know, it's yeah. got to be about yeah. me all the time. I have learned that I'm not, I don't do well with that. You know, and <laughs> okay. so there are definitely, you know, those subcategories where I'm like, Hey, if I even get a whiff of that, even if I'm wrong, you know, we've had kids that have ended up in our conference and I'm at peace with it. Cause I'm like, okay, well, you know, I hope that coach is able to serve you. Cause I wouldn't have been able to, you know, yeah. so it definitely have a category of non-negotiables. But I do try to be flexible with that because I also have to be understanding that, you know, college is an incredible developmental time. Yeah. And so if I'm expecting to always get finished products, I mean, I guess I could go to the WNBA or NBA, but, you know, even at that level, those guys and those gals got some things they usually have to work on as well. And so, you know, if you say that you're in coaching for mentoring and helping young women and young men become the best versions of themselves, you can't always cherry pick just the good things. Well, I just want this kid because she can just, well, yeah, what coach in America doesn't want that? You know, now, like I said, we do we have our things that I'm like, hey, I just have to know me and be honest with myself that I don't do well with or I'm just not equipped to be able to handle or my staff isn't equipped. Absolutely. But you do have to kind of take it with a caring eye of like, okay, she may not be you know, providing this, but is this something in our environment and within our culture we can cultivate within her? I think some things that are also important, too, is how much is the player able to deal with adversity? And I think that goes again back to the relationship they have with their parents. You know, how much is their parent kind of spoon feeding them versus, all right, yeah, you got to dig in and you got to deal with this. You got to communicate tough conversations. That's a big thing. And then confidence. Where does their confidence come from? Does it come from a place where the parent is just hyperinflating their ego? Or is it something where it's backed by hard work and, you know, that sort of thing? Dan, I'd love to 
go back to something you said, and you both can dive in on this, but you mentioned checking in. And maybe if we could get specific on the check-ins for a second and how you actually check in. And what I mean is, is it an on-the-court thing? Is it off-the-court? Is it shooting drills after practice? Is it an official sit-down in your office? I mean, there's so many ways you can check in with the player. How have you preferred to do that? I think it's a mix of all of that. If you only have one certain way to do it, stuff can fall through the cracks. And especially if you're not communicating as a staff, you know, I checked in with so-and-so, everything was good. Or I checked in with such-and-such after practice, and she mentioned something about her mom is going through some stuff with her job. Or, you know, there's so many things that are little that you may not pick up as an individual. But if the whole staff and the players, to be honest, included, we all got to know that we're on the same page here and we're all trying to pick up on even just little things. Absolutely. And just if I could ask you as the head coach, sometimes a check-in is interesting because, you know, being the ultimate decision maker, sometimes the check-in with the head coach can feel bigger or there's a lot on the line. Do you feel that difference since you've moved from an assistant to head coach and how you go about with the check-ins? I feel that a thousand percent, you know, I've never felt more of a principal in my life, you know, which (laughs) my first year, that was the, probably one of my hardest adjustments because I was so used to, like you said, as an assistant coach, a lot of times kids will just come in your office and just fall apart without you even having to, you know, ask them anything. They're going to come in and just fall apart, you know? And so it was tough as a head coach, you know, having to hear from my staff, Hey, so-and-so is going through. So, and I'm like, I just was with her. Like she didn't say anything. And instead of taking it initially personally of like, well, do they not like me? Is something going on here? And having to, like you said, Dan, you're the head coach now. You're the authority figure. You're the decision maker. You know, you're the grand poobah. So no, (laughs) these kids are not going to just naturally bring things to you. And that for me was definitely adjustment. So I definitely try to do it a lot on the court just because for whatever reason, when you have kids come up to your office, everyone assumes they're in trouble. And if you're in trouble, like, you think I'm going to wait till after practice? Like, no, we're going to (laughs) address it as soon as I get that information, you know? So I try to do it a lot on the court, you know, before practice, I'll just say, what's going on? How are you doing? You know, how's life and kind of keep it light. But if there's something that, you know, I see during practice or I know it may be a little bit heavier, we're fortunate enough on our court, we have cabanas on our court. So I joke with them and just bring them to the cabana and be like, let's just chill out, you know, and I'll check in with them that way because. I have to keep that setting as casual as possible, you know, just because if there's any sense of needing to be defensive or needing to come up with a story or needing to put on a front, it becomes really, really difficult for them to understand. Like me as a head coach, I'm going to be your number one advocate. If something's wrong, I want to figure it out, but it can be tough for kids to see that once you become a head coach. If I can add to that, to me, like the next level of development, I think in basketball is going to be the mental piece. To me, being a college basketball player right now is the best time that it's ever been, whether it be making money or exposure or NIL, all that stuff. But with that, it's also the highest pressure time to ever be a college basketball player because you're constantly under the microscope. Sometimes it's on ESPN. Sometimes it's just on your Twitter feed. Whatever it is, you're always being watched. And so working with a guy like Joe Boylan, when I was with the Pelicans, he does a ton of stuff as far as the mental approach and understanding who you're working with, how they react to certain things is huge. And I think we're going to continue to try and delve into that. Dan, following up on that point, we've been talking about with your conversations, your check-ins, but what are maybe the conversations that you're having with the team just about awareness, about 
emotional IQ and mental health that maybe you're bringing to them to try to educate them? Well, I know, you know, Coach Burks and I, when we coach, our aggression and our competitiveness levels up, I don't know, tenfold. <laughs> so yeah, I think a huge thing that you want to talk about is once you're in that competitive atmosphere, how to deal with adversity. That's what it comes down to is when a referee gives you a bad call or you have to check out because you shot a couple shots that maybe coach didn't like or a defensive assignment or whatever it was, something bad happened. And now how do you react to it? How do you deal with that? How have you dealt with it in the past? And now let's move it forward. Let's try and do this in a way that's more appropriate or better. My final question on this topic for you both, and Jessica, I'll start with you on this, is we've been talking about how you help players, but like to finish with yourselves and your staff, because as we all know, being a coach is great, but it also is very demanding of your time and of your own emotional energy. And so how have you, and we can talk about you both and then the staff as well, work on, think about understanding what you need as well. That's a great question. I've definitely gotten better at it in, you know, year two. I know year one, you know, there were days where I was just exhausted. I'm just, I'm high strung. I'm stressed out, but I would, you know, slap a smile on and, you know, we, we got to get into practice. Let's go, you know, because if I'm expecting our kids to come in and be great and be okay, I have to give that persona as a head coach. And, you know, we definitely were fortunate enough to our first year to have a lot of success, but I wasn't able to enjoy it until after the season. You know, because I wouldn't even allow myself to enjoy the wins on or off the court, you know, the cultural victories and the, you know, actual game victories, because I was just so consumed of, we have to be great. We have to continue to push forward. No one gets a chance to celebrate right now. We haven't done anything and not understanding, you know, it's like, no, like celebrate those moments because you're going to have a lot of valleys and you're going to need those victories sometimes to get you out of bed some mornings, you know, so that was definitely something for me. I, I was like, hey, I got to get better with that. But definitely understanding that, you know, you don't have to be a head coach all the time. You know, and what I mean by that is, you know, when you have off time, take it. We're fortunate enough on the women's side here. We have recruiting shutdowns where you can't do anything. You can't make or receive calls. And I remember when it first rolled out, I was pissed because I love recruiting. That's one of my favorite things mm -hmm. to do. And I was like, what do you mean? I got seven days. I can't talk to kids. This is so lazy. Like who will put this into place? And like now going to year three, I'm like, when's the shutdown? Like how many days out are we like, okay, we need the business to end two days before. <laughs> like I'm like counting down the days of those moments because it is so easy to allow this to become all consuming, you know, and you do want to be the best version of yourself for your kids. They deserve that. But like you said, if I'm not taking a moment to be like, okay, I'm stressed. This is a lot. I feel like I'm getting a little heavy. If I'm not respectful of that and I don't navigate that, I'm not going to be the best for them. And it's not going to help them be the best version of themselves. So it's definitely something, you know, personally, I have to be hyper aware of. And the moments I get to shut it down, I shut it down. Like, nope, we're not going to be a coach today. We're just going to be Jess and Jess is not going to do anything today, you know, and being okay with that. And then I know as a head coach with my staff, I try to be incredibly, incredibly vigilant and respectful of that just because they take incredibly good care of me, you know? And so when they have family events or emergencies or anything of the sort, or they're just having a rough, like I'm just having a bad day. I'm like, okay, we'll tap into you later. Like take some time, you know, don't do anything today. Shut that down because I've been on staffs where, you know, head coaches treat you like a robot. And it's like, what do you mean you're stressed out? What do you mean you're tired? Like get over it. 
And it's like, well, right. no, I'm a human being. You know, like, I, I do have a life outside of this. And I do have emotions outside of this. Absolutely. And Dan, how about you? How you think about working on your own emotional IQ, let's say throughout the season, especially like January, February, March, when it's just you're on the treadmill and sort of checking in with yourself, checking in obviously with your staff as well as your players. I think a big thing is understanding that you yourself is a work in progress and understanding how you process certain things. So like for me, I'm much more of an observer. I like to sit back and really think things out. Whereas I think Jess, like she's constantly doing that. So she always is looking at different perspectives all the time. And so for me, when something happens, I need to sit back and actually go through that process myself. I think a lot of this job, again, going into that competitive environment, it's really easy to have knee-jerk reactions and it's really difficult to give yourself time and space. And I think you wanna try and do that as much as possible because ultimately like, there shouldn't be an excuse for treating people poorly or for reacting poorly. Absolutely. Just if I could just ask one follow up for yeah. you before we move on to some on the court stuff, we'll we'll get to that in a second. Mm -hmm. But this is just such a great conversation. No, this is a phenomenal topic. Thank you for asking. <laughs> Absolutely. No, thanks for having this. One of the things that Pat and I love talking about with coaches is it's just such a complex profession. There's so many layers to it, and sort of the field and topic we're talking about with emotional IQ and how you have to carry the sort of emotional baggage of not just yourself, but of your staff and of your players and of the program. And there's a lot of things that you have to carry as a head coach all season. And you talked about how you've gotten better at that over the last couple of years of finding time for yourself. But then I wonder how, as you've gotten better, how it relates to your decision-making. If you feel it's made things clear for you to make certain decisions, if you're in a better place or how you've gotten to a point of whether it's tactical decisions, whether it's roster decisions, whatever it is for you as a head coach. It's made a huge difference, you know, just being able to understand the origin of where this reaction is coming from. My first year, like I said, I was super tired, super stressed out, you know, and we're in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. You know, it was just like, you know, life was coming at me a hundred miles an hour. And so I was just going and it was honestly, a lot of it was a lot of emotion and instinct of just like, okay, this feels right. Let's do this. Let's do this. And like I said, I was fortunate. I had a great group of kids that wanted to change, wanted to shift and we shifted a whole lot around. So I was fortunate enough that they were happy to come along for that ride, but definitely, you know, going into year two and definitely going into year three, I've had to take a moment and be like, okay, where is this answer coming from? Where is this reaction coming from? Is this because I was up till 2 a.m. watching film, you know, or is this coming from I'm truly pissed off and this is attacking our culture? Sure. Because if it's attacking our culture, then no, that's a non-negotiable for me. We're going to address this in a moment. Our kids will tell you I'm coming with fire and brimstone. <laughs> if it's about our culture, mm -mm, you're going to get the full, full mm -hmm. arm of the law right there. You know, but if it's something because I'm tired, you know, I didn't get it. You know, my flight got delayed coming back from seeing a kid, you know, it's like, Okay, let's take a beat and let's make sure that whatever message I need to get across, whether it's to my staff, whether it's to our players, that is coming out first and foremost. Because if all they're feeling is the heat off of this, a lot of times that message and that contact is going to get lost. And so that is definitely something, you know, like I said, going into year two, definitely going into year three, I've had to really, like you said, take an inventory of like, okay, where is this coming from? Is this a tired, frustrated, pissed off? Or is it something that our culture, our foundation, our standards are being attacked? And I've got to defend those things. Coaches, the next big game or Jonas Brothers concert you attend, enjoy $20 off 
from our partners at SeatGeek, the web's largest event ticket search engine. Enter the code SLAPPINGGLASS at checkout to receive the discount on your first order with SeatGeek today. Thanks for the support, and now back to our conversation. We'd like to now move onto the court a little bit with you both. And one of the things that I know is interesting here, Dan, you've got a great background in player development. And then we'd like to tie the two together with obviously being on the same staff and your background, how player development ties into an overall system. And so Dan, we'll actually start with you on this one and how you think about implementing you know, a player development system that's both specific for each individual player to get better, but then also ties into an overall scheme or system for the program? Yeah, that's a big question. I think the big thing is understanding how you want to play. And I know Coach Burks really wants to play fast. She wants to attack the rim. She wants to be a very good team from three-point line. And defensively, we really want to pressure and play 94 feet and really get after it. So pace and space is huge for us. Understanding like for our wings, for example, as soon as we get that rebound, they are sprinting to the corners and giving those ball handlers coming up the court as much space as possible. And now their defender has to make a decision as far as am I giving up the three or giving up a layup. And so once you have that broad base understanding, now you can start to dive into the details of, you know, when I do have these small group workouts or individual workouts, what exactly do we need to work on right now today? And understanding, you know, there's a list of seven, eight, nine, ten things that you think this player can get better at. Well, we probably should work on the top three. I think a lot of player development coaches or assistant coaches kind of get lost in the weeds a little bit of, well, we really need to work on ball handling and isolation or such and such. One of the best things that I learned through my skill development journey, a guy named Noah LaRoche talked a lot about how often are you going to use the footwork or the move? It's all about percentage of possession. So, you know, work on the things that you're going to do a lot, cutting, spacing, finishing at the rim, you know, those types of reads at the rim, becoming really good at that. Joe Boylan has sent me a lot of stuff as far as practicing shooting. There has to be a decision involved. But again, it goes back to the communication with the head coach and understanding the broad base, like this is how we want to play. And then now we can dive into the details. Just if I could go to you on this. And one of the areas we actually wanted to even dive deeper down into with the player development, all that is, is shooting specifically and how working on shooting players form all that uh, ties into an overall system. And just for you, let's say when the season starts, how do you think about, shooting as far as getting a player better versus just getting them more reps or like I said, decisions on where the shots are going to come from as a head coach. Absolutely. So I'm a huge believer of if there's any major tweaks you need to make to a kid's shot, that's got to happen in the summer. Like that's got to be something that's attacked them because, you know, a big thing we talk about with our program and our players is the summer is a time to be selfish. Focus on you. How can you get better? How can you figure things out? Like, we're going to take a deep dive into your game in particular. Once preseason and, you know, an actual end season starts, I'm all about reps. Just because shooting, you know, a huge, huge piece of, I know Coach Jan talk, you know, touched on it is confidence. The kid just has to believe it's going to go in. It's one thing if the kid comes to you and she wants to make minor tweaks. And when I say minor, I want it to be minor tweaks, you know, maybe Uh a little bit of a tighter elbow angle, a little bit more of a harder follow through. But 
we're not going to do any real workshop work on that kid's shot because in season, she just needs to believe it's going to go in. And so a big thing with that is just time, you know, getting her in the gym, having her work on it and just having her see it go through the net. And so that's something where, you know, I think you have to be very, very strategic with that just because, you know, you cannot have players doubting themselves in season. You know, that's a big thing I tell our kids. I'm like, I don't need you to become a new animal in season. (laughs) Like (laughs) whatever you're good at, your niche at, be an animal at that. That's all I need. I may demand a new level of effort. I may demand a new level of toughness, but who you are as a player, I'm not going to ask for a new version of that. That's too much to ask in one of the highest pressure points of a season. So when it comes to shooting in season, we're just getting up reps and helping her just to become as confident as possible that the ball is going to go in. I'd love to follow up with you, Dan, actually staying on the shooting and in the summer, when you look at a player's shot, what would make you decide, like, let's fix the inconsistencies versus let's just get their shot consistent with what it is and, you know, make them comfortable and better in their form. Yeah, I think it comes down to how much change you think you can get in what amount of time. And so to me, the things that are really important as far as shooting, strictly from a technique standpoint, is are you releasing the ball on the way up? Are you getting the ball to go straight? There's a lot of players that miss left or right, and it's really inconsistent. A lot of that has to do with their guide hand thumb. Is their guide hand thumb pushing Mm -hmm. the ball a direction that you don't want it to go. You want that ball to go straight. And then Coach Burks talked about the follow through. A lot of players, you'll see their hand is doing sign language <laughs> as the ball is coming out. <laughs> How that ball yeah. comes out of your hand should be really consistent straight through. We talk about straight through on the follow through. I think those are the biggest things. Balance, obviously, is a, is a big key. You want to try and stay away from hip or shoulder rotation, but it's not exact science. It's so much of it is a feel thing. Sure. So much of it is understanding the player that you're working with. There could be two different players that have the same exact technique flaws, but you're going to approach it differently because maybe one of them is more confident. Maybe one of them is going to work harder in their off time. So there's a lot that goes into it. I think the more you understand the players you're working with, the better. So just to you, when you're putting a practice plan together and you talked about wanting to get a lot of reps during the season, how much time would you allot let's say on an average day to individual shooting and then what would a drill look like to include some maybe decision making in the shooting with also getting reps in the middle of the year so we definitely don't i know coach feels like you have enough time to do individual because you feel like every scout and opponent is coming at you you know 100 miles an hour but we definitely try to sneak it in within drills like you mentioned and so a big thing for me is pace shooting you know, that is really, really important to me. Like I, you know, coaching, I'm saying, I don't like just stand still casual. Let's just get up some shots. Like I, for what, like, you know, in a 40 minute game, it's very rare, you know, against good competition, you're just going to get wide open. I can just take my time, you know, feel the breeze, you know, open jump shots. It doesn't happen. You're going to be in situations where, you know, that window may be great, but it's closing. You know, and so Mm -hmm. that's a big, big thing we talk about with our players of getting your feet set and sprinting to that spot, getting set, body control, body language when receiving the ball and being ready to knock down that shot. So that's definitely something we talk a lot about within drill work. And then as far as with decision making, you know, this year we reinstituted a lot of three on two, two on one mini games, you know, which I remember thinking so many times where I'm like, that's what high school teams do. Like, why are we doing that? But (laughs) 
it was great because you make some of the best decisions when it's low numbers like that. Or as a coach, I got to realize kids who don't make great decisions, right. you know, in those moments, because I'm like, you're given an advantage. Like, why are we not seeing the situation correctly? And so we instituted that a lot this year and we were able to make a ton of growth with that just because we were able to be a little bit more explicit when telling kids of like, hey, this is why this wasn't a great decision as opposed to, you know, we were doing it five on five, you know, if it didn't work out, the kid was like, Oh, it just didn't work out. And I'm like, no, it's a reason it didn't work out. <laughs> you know, like, sure. let's, let's break this yeah. down. And so when we were able to break it down into those mini games, they were able to see, I mean, just clear as day of like, Oof, okay, this wasn't a good decision. We've got to be better. And we were able to make huge strides with that. Coach, In those games, when players were making the wrong decisions, what did you find you were correcting the most? Or was there like a recurring theme with the players and why they were making wrong decisions? Was it just they didn't have enough reps or was there something maybe specific that you found? So you would see them coming down. And a big thing I, you know, I'm a huge believer of when this starts spinning, the feet stop moving. And it's like, mm -hmm. you can see on the kid's face where it's like, she's so consumed of reading and making the perfect read that she's not just being aggressive. And so I know for us, a big thing we ended up correcting a lot was if you were the ball handler and you know, you're getting off the glass or transition, the first thing for us, go get a layup, make them stop you, make the defense show that improve that they can stop you as an aggressor right now, because if they don't go score the ball, like you're so concerned if y'all coming down and making the right pass or making the right, you may be the right option right now. So that was a big thing we harped on and said, Hey, you get that ball and you go, if they don't stop you go, you know, and obviously there's levels to that of, you know, finishing, you know, versus a secondary defender or finishing through an arm, you know, a big thing. If you see an arm go arms, don't stop anybody, go finish, go get a layup right there, you know? And so once they were able to see that, you know, and become super aggressive, you know, and force the defense to shift, force the defense to shift, our decision-making went way up, which, you know, it's so funny for us. Cause I'm like, we're a transition team. And it wasn't even for me as a coach. So we broke it down to that level where I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Like our kids don't understand. Like when you have the ball, you've got to be our number one option. You've got to be super aggressive. And it's not necessarily from a standpoint of being a ball hog or anything of that nature, but if you're not aggressive and you don't force this defense to shift, we're not going to get great looks because now they get to stand in these perfect gaps in this perfect defensive position. And now we're the ones having to shift and move the ball and do all this extra stuff where if you just go and you force them, even if it's just one person to overcommit, great. Now you're going to make the right read because it's become super obvious to you. Absolutely. Dan, to you, not every individual development program is the same for each player, obviously. But as we all know, as coaches, one of the best ways to get players better is for them to be on the floor getting game reps. And I'd love to know what your conversations and maybe individual segments might be like with 8, 9, 10, 11 that aren't getting a lot of time on the floor, but you still want to develop them. They're not maybe getting the shots in the game like the top players, but you still want them to get good reps. You know, Dan, we'll start with you. And then just I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well It's just how you think about working with the bench players and beyond to keep them hungry and also get them better. Yeah, I think the reason those players are in those spots rotation-wise is typically because they don't make great decisions. And so the more reps you give them as far as making better decisions, the more that that's going to help them, you know, once somebody does go down with an ankle and now, oh, surprise, you're playing today. You're playing 20 minutes, even though you're used to being the ninth, 10th guy. So now since you have those reps built in, now you're coming out more comfortable as far as if you're going to just work on technique 
shooting wise, like, yeah, it's a, it'll help a little bit, you know, again, going back to how many possessions per game is this kid going to get shooting a wide open uncontested three versus how many possessions are they going to get where they get a kick out and they have to drive it and make a good decision. Again, it's not an exact science, but I think the more that you can give them reps where it's as game-like as possible, and then you start to build up the amount of decisions that they make and the amount of pressure on those decisions. So like, for example, maybe in the beginning of the process, you start with just two on two and it's just driving kick reads, draw two defenders, kick it out, shoot the shot. Then you can add in a rotation defender where that, you know, now three on three situation, you're reading the kick out read. But at the same time, if that opposite wing drops down to take that away, now you got to hit the wing lifted. And not to mention, if you make the wrong read, you have an up and back. So adding those layers to the decision-making and, you know, the pressure to make the correct decision. That way, once they do get in the game, oh, shoot, I've already made a five on five decision where I had to do a crazy eight. You know, this is nothing. <laughs> I don't have to run for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so I think, I think that's a really big key. And that was a lot of what I got from working with the G League under the Celtics and with the Pelicans. I would say for me, it's definitely more so culture-based. Probably about a month ago, like a little later after the end of our season, I had the fortune of connecting with Winter Hamilton at Florida State. And he has a very unique style of play, you know, heavy rotations, really has just these one booming stars. You know, they're just usually a very great team. And so, you know, in the day and age of the transfer portal, you know, I absolutely love the kids I have coming back. You know, I've got some baby boomers that, you know, had some really, really great freshman years with us. And I'm like, I'm going to get poached. Like, I just know it, you know, <laughs> and it was, you know, it was a legitimate concern of mine of like, we got to, you know, I kept telling them, we got to keep them happy. You got to keep them happy. got to keep them happy because, you know, you could have had a great freshman year. You know, every coach is, your goal is always to bring in better players. You always want to bring in, even if it's just a little bit, a little bit better than the class before, you know? And so as great as that sounds in theory, it can create friction. It can create disappointment. It can create disengagement, you know, on a player's behalf. And so, you know, he had such a great, simple quote for me where he was like, you're so concerned right now, just on keeping them happy, keep them bought in. He was like, if they feel like they have, you know, it is truly shared success across the board. He was like, they're not going to be counting minutes. They're not going to be counting reps. You know, he was like, they're going to be more consumed on how am I adding value to our program? You know, he was like, and yeah, every kid wants to play when the lights come on. You know, you don't recruit kids that don't want that. He was like, but if they can understand that, you know, the work they help us do in the dark is the reason we as a collective are having success in the light. That's a completely different mindset as opposed to, I got to keep her happy. I got to keep her happy. I got to keep her happy. And so that for me, like I said, is something that, I mean, it was like mind blowing where I was like, Jesus, yeah. I was like, it's so simple, but it's true. And so that's something we've talked about. I've talked a lot about with our players this summer is, you know, this is the honeymoon phase. No playing time's been decided. No, no plays have been drawn up. No reps have been yeah. taken. You know, it's, it's easy to be positive right now, but getting them to really buy in of like, thank you for doing the work you're doing. You know, I, Hey, I see how much you care about this program. I appreciate that. And so taking a little bit more of that approach with when we do hit that tough time of where you're realizing your numbers, not getting as called as much as you may have won or thought it was going to be, they understand that, okay, you know what? It may not be as much as I want it to be, but it's not from a lack of appreciation. It's not from a lack of value from my coaching staff. It's just, Hey, this is where they see me being able to contribute. And yeah, I want that role to grow, but it doesn't mean they don't value what I'm giving right now. 
we'd love to transition now to a segment on the show that we call start, sub, or sit. And so we will give you both three different topics, ask you to start one, sub one, and sit one. But we're going to do this just a little bit different since we've got both of you on here today on the same staff, married, you know, all that stuff. We thought we'll play the newlywed version of this game. So what we'll do is we will ask one of you what you think the other one's answer will be. And then we'll flip back to that person and see how close they were to that final answer. So we've got one for each of you here. And so this first one, I'm going to ask Dan for Jessica. So Dan, I'm going to ask you what you think Jessica's answers will be on this. And then Jessica will let you tell how close Dan was on this. So this first theme is on attacking the top of a zone, ways to break down the top of a zone and create an advantage. So three different ways that we have that you can attack, whether it's a, a two guard front, three guard front. So start, sub or sit, overload it in some way, screen them, So let's say an on-ball step up or maybe a flare or something, some sort of screen action on the top or space and drive against them. Just space them out and look to attack via a drive. Yeah, I think she'd have a question to start. Who's on my roster? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right, who has the ball? (laughs) Yes. Um, But no, I think she would probably start some sort of, you know, swing the ball to get a flare screen. So get the ball from one side to the other and then misdirect your flare for like a skip pass sort of situation. Okay. Probably coming off the bench would be some sort of a penetration, either to get a kick out or attack the zone that way. And then the third option, she would definitely sit. So if I have this right, just would start the screen, sub the space and drive and sit the overload. That's just my guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So <laughs> Jess, we'll, we'll flip it to you. How close was he? He was spot on. He knows his wife. Right. Yeah, he was spot on. He knows. I want to shoot you out that zone. <laughs> he was spot on. <laughs> okay. So I would just like to jump in with your start and why you love flaring or screening the top of a zone to get looks. I love it because a lot of times with the top of a zone, you know, depending on the zones, of course, you know, a lot of times kids can get caught ball watching and they're not worried about what's going on. You know, I say, well, you're not worried about what's going on behind your ponytail. You know, you're so locked (laughs) in or zoned in on the ball that you have no idea what's going on behind you. So I love being able to flare that zone or a hard skip to a pin down or pin down to a, a quick baseline runner or something, you know, action like that, just because. You know, like I said, a lot of times they get so focused on the ball, they have no idea what's going on behind them. And most people, you know, when you go against a zone, everything's interior. Get the ball to the high post. We got to get it to, you know, go swing pose, get it inside, as opposed to not assuming like, wait, you're screening my top two or three guards. And now my bottom bigs have to come out and contest that. And I love that because one, a lot of times it's going to leave a quicker window for your shooters to be able to get that shot off. Or two, even your slowest, you know, footed guard, you're going against a four or five, she's going to be a lot more confident probably attacking that kid. And I love it because it keeps your shooters on the outside. So even if she does end up attacking that bottom big, I'm keeping my shooter space, I'm keeping them in their comfort zones, and it allows us to get great looks from the outside because, you know, most teams zone you because you are good to the rim and you are doing a great job of getting to the middle of the floor and making great decisions with it. So we can show that we can also make great decisions from shooting the ball and knocking down shots outside, but also showing we can attack your zone still with you guys having some, you know, built-in help. For my sub, 
I definitely love get downhill. Like just because they're sitting in that zone, it's because they can't guard you one-on-one. That doesn't change anything for us, you know? And a big thing we talk about with that is attack one of the two. You know, if it's a two guard front, attack one of them and make it a two-on-one, you know, two people drawn to the ball, get rid of it. Okay, now we're, you know, we'll shift, we'll kick, but go at somebody, you know, make one of them have to make a decision of I've got to stop the ball and make somebody overhelp. And then we'll make a decision after that. Jessica, I'd like to just follow up. You mentioned an action. I'm just curious if you could elaborate. You said a hard skip to a pin down against the zone. Yes. Can you just elaborate on what that is or what that action would look like? Yeah, absolutely. So for us, we'll do an initial flare for our best shooter. And so most they're ready for that one. You know, they're like, all right, you know, they're fighting over the flare and they're there. And so we'll send her down to the baseline. And so usually at the point she skipped it over to the other side, she starts cutting down like she's looping to the opposite corner. The defense starts to shift that top guard. If it's a two, three, one of the top guards is on the ball. The other one's in the middle of the floor. Yeah. We have our kid drive it to the nail, attacking that other top guard. And then our post player who initially set the flare, she goes and sets a pin down on that weak side wing. Okay. And so now when I'm coming off, if I'm the ball handler and I'm attacking this top guard and that other guard has to overhelp, she's got to honor that. Mm -hmm. Because if not, you're just going to let me attack down the middle of your zone and we'll take that any day of the week. But she's going to have to overhelp, which nine times out of 10 with a two, three, your bottom four then has to come up. They have to stun and, you know, stop the ball, stop the shot. Well, our big man's going to pin down on her. And then our shooter just pops out to the wing. Don't okay. give this away now. If I if no, 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 in the conference okay. play, and I'm like, what how did they know that? <laughs> or I'm going on Saturday night. I'm going to be emailing yeah. you guys like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dan, I'd love to ask you, would your answer have been the same if we just asked you personally for your start subset on that? I probably would have switched the start and the sub just because what Jess said. Anytime you can get a rim attack is a great thing. If you screen that top, whoever, whether it be a one, three, one or two, three or whatever type of zone, if you get that screening action and get that player downhill, get that ball going downhill, that'll lead to a lot of good things. All right. Our next starts up sit. So Jessica, I'm going to be asking you for Dan's response. Okay. So starts up sit different types of pressure defense. So starts up or sit a one, two, two, a two, two, one, or tagging up. I would say probably start our two, two, one, sub our one, two, two, and then bench attack up. (laughs) 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 All right, Dan, how did she do? So this is actually tough. I would actually bring that, remember that eighth player we were talking about that we had to (laughs) through? I love just, and this was something I got from a junior college level, Danny Yoshikawa. We did a one three one and he called it the amoeba. I don't know where he got that from, but it was a zone with man-to-man concepts. And at the time we had a pretty good amount of length and athleticism for that level. And man, we would just crush people with it. I know that wasn't an option, but <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's a trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I think ultimately, like if you have a bunch of kids that really just want to get after it, it doesn't necessarily matter what you run. As long as you're detailed on the rules and hold them accountable for when they don't do their job, I don't know if it matters what you do. It matters how you do it. I think tagging up is great. I think there's some... He doesn't like it. He, <laughs> wanted, he wanted 
doesn't like it. He's trying yeah. to be nice right now. I'm trying yeah. to be nice, and uh, I'm also. I feel like I'm so much more of an offensive coach that it's kind of just like you coach the defense. I... <laughs> so Dan, was she close at all in her? So she bench tagging up. What was it? And then two to one, you started. started. I start with that. Yeah. yeah. And again, I feel like I've kind of flip flopped back and forth. Like I've had times where I thought tagging up was great. And especially if you are a pressing team, I think you do want to tag up for the majority of the game if you're not in a press, just because it tends to still make that team on their toes. Number one, like kind of feeling like, okay, when is it coming? Sort of situation. Like, is there going to be a run and jump on the back end when I try and push to the sideline? But it also tends to slow the ball down. So I think tagging up is great if you are a pressing team. As far as one two two versus two two one, again, I think it just depends on what you're comfortable coaching in. It also depends on who your backline guy is. If you have somebody sitting in the back that's a great quarterback, as far as like moving the defense, telling them, "Hey, hey, you got to drop, drop, drop. I'm going, I'm going," or that sort of thing. Like you have to have somebody that can really communicate and move your teammates around. And coach, maybe just philosophically as to why you like to press or why you'd be a pressing team. Are you looking because you think you can turn the team over? You want to generate steals or is it you want to dictate how they play offense, whether it be you want to run clock off or you want to speed them up so that they're executing faster than they're comfortable with? It's all the above, you know, um, like Coach Dan mentioned, you know, as excited as I probably sound about defense right now, I'm very much an offensive coach. I want to score the (laughs) ball. You know, we want to score, you know, 70 plus points per game. Well, to do that, you can't let people walk the ball up. You know, you got to turn people over. You got to get possessions back now, because if we're going 30 for 30 every single time, we're never going to achieve that goal. And so for us, if you want to score at such a high clip, you need more possessions. Well, I got to turn you over in the first 10 seconds then. You know, you can't get it past half court, you know, or if we do let you get it past half court, you've got to cough it up before the 22nd mark. We've got to be strategic about getting that ball back so we can score it on the other end. But like you mentioned, Patrick, it's also about, you know, we have a team UAB in our conference who does a phenomenal job when they are a system. Like those kids make read like nobody's business, you know, so they're backdoor and they're flaring. It's like, if we sit back and just let them run their stuff, it's going to be a long night for us guys, you know, as opposed to, okay, we're going to pressure. We may not want to turn them over necessarily because, you know, these are kids that make great decisions, but if we make them have to use a lot more clock than they're used to, or we're having people that normally don't make these decisions. Well, now that becomes disruptive because it's like, well, wait a minute, you know, she always makes this pass or she always makes this cut, or I'm always the one that's supposed to be screening. If we can be disruptive that way, where we may not necessarily turn you over as far as a live ball, but we can be disruptive within your offense and made more of a shot clock turnover or a bad shot turnover. We want to get that as well. Dan, you mentioned the amoeba. And from what you remember, what was it about the amoeba and running it that caused so many issues? Was it the pressure part of it? Was it the the switches that were kind of awkward for the offense to figure out? Like, can you remember what it was that made the amoeba an effective defense? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was Coach Yoshi recognized that we had a lot of players that could play any part of that zone. And so because of the fact that we could all play every single position in it, we were able to seamlessly just switch back and forth and communicate. And, you know, you could never figure out, is this a man or a zone? And, you know, having kind of similar to today, the NBA game, especially having players that can guard one through five or at least one through four. To me, that was the big part of it. All right. Well, 
Thank you both for playing Start, Sub, or Sit. You're off the uh, the hot seat on that. That was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. You definitely got some synergy there, obviously. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> we've got one more question for you each before we're done. Before we do, thanks so much for your time. I know it's a busy you know, recruiting and travel seasons right now. So thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. This was yeah. really fun. Absolutely. Thank you for having us. It's been fun. Our last question for you both, and we'll start, Dan, with you. And it's a question we ask all of our guests here at the end. And it's, what's the best investment that you've made in your career as a coach? So beyond just, you know, developing a relationship with my future wife and now my boss, I think the biggest thing you can do, and to me, the pandemic, like really, it was an explosion of sharing. Because we couldn't get in the gym and work with our own players, we were all so addicted to it. It's like, all right, let me at least jump on a Zoom. Let, I got to talk about, you know, basketball and different reads and da, da, da. So it's been so cool to see that. And I think the biggest thing you can do is invest in your own time to get better at your craft. And I've seen it at so many different levels. And a guy that I used to work for in junior college, Remy McCarthy, his best quote that he ever gave me, he had a lot of them, was, it's not about being right. It's about getting it right. And understanding that, you know, all of this knowledge, very few of it is original to that person. They all got it from somebody else. And the more that we can share and continue to learn, but at the same time, also watch film, try and research the game, how you want to play it. Scott Morrison, when I was with the G League team for the Celtics, the main Red Claws, he took an entire summer one time to study 10,000 three-point shots. And he looked at points per possession, why was it more advantageous to shoot certain shots? He called it rim threat threes. What he found was if you shoot a three-pointer with some sort of rim threat, whether it be a drive and kick, a post up, a cut, points per possession wise, and this was a a giant light bulb just went off after he kind of talked us through it. It's a lot higher. You know, there's defense now that has to come to the basket. So it's better for offensive rebounding. It's now better, you know, even on the other end, you know, getting back in transition. So the more that you research, you know, another thing that I learned with the G League team was finishing footwork in situations. Watch the film, watch the guys that really do it well, figure out why they do it well and study the game. Continue to jump on podcasts, listen to podcasts, anything you can do networking wise, go to conventions. The more that you can learn, the more you can pass on. And certainly like the best investment I've ever put into my own self was giving my time to learn. Really well said. Thank you for that. And Jessica, we'll give you the last word. Same question for you. For me, it's definitely a little bit more on the business side. I had the fortune, my second year of coaching, I got connected with Brian Stanchek for a BBS agency through a mutual friend, Coach Bazella at Seton Hall. Um, I interviewed with him, Coach Bazella, I think like three times, went 0 for 3. And I was heartbroken. I was like, why yeah. won't this man, you know, you're my mentor. Like, why won't this man hire me? <laughs> and now being older, I understand it truly is just fit and timing of your staff and things of that, you know, your team, like it's, it's a lot more layers to it as opposed to just liking you as a person. And so he introduced me to Brian. I mean, I had, my resume was a, barely a one pager. Like it, I was not outside of just a lot of enthusiasm. I just wasn't bringing a lot to the table. Um, and, you know, Brian, he was like, you know, I, I researched him. He's, you know, even currently is this incredible client list. And so 
I was like, why is this man going to take my call? You know, but Coach Bazella vouched for me. was like, hey, you know, I think she has a chance to be great. You know, I think she's someone that really cares about what she does. I just think she needs a little bit more support in that department. And so, you know, Brian was very transparent. He was like, I don't normally take on people. <laughs> like, with this, with this, I think he said something a lot more eloquent, but it's basically lack of resume. He's like, but hey, Tony swears by you. So, you know, I'd love to work with you. And that by far has been one of the best investments because to touch on what, you know, Dan said, it allowed me just to focus on my craft. You know, for me is something, you know, and I know I preach it to younger generations, but, you know, networking is incredibly huge. You know, you've got, it's not about what you know, it's about who you know, and do they know you? And that's something for me that is just wasn't very instinctual. Like, you know, I never go into places wanting to build a relationship with you in hopes that it's going to lead to something down the line. Like, and I don't want you to get that impression. And so I just want to build a relationship with you. You like me. I like you. This is genuine. And then it goes from there. But, you know, within coaching at every level, there are some politics involved. Sometimes you've got to kiss the ring. I'm not a ring kisser. That's just not me. You know, like I believe in my work ethic. I believe in my love for the game. I believe in my love for players and their development on and off the court. And so if I have to do anything but display that to you, it's just it's not me. You know, and if anything's going to take time away from me working on those things, that's not me. On that note, now that you're a head coach, when younger coaches maybe reach out to you, what is something you would advise coaches who are trying to form these networks, search out relationships that can help their career? Be yourself. If I feel like I'm having a conversation with you and I feel like you're just subtly quoting your resume or things you've done, I'm automatically no, you know, because you've already let me know it's about you. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, you've already let me know that, you know, I've got to be in the forefront as opposed to coaches that I've met where it's true connection. And they talk about what they're passionate about and they talk about things that need to be better within our game or, you know, things of that nature. Those are the coaches that I'm drawn to and keep on my short list because I once again, I know it's not about you. And this is a position you can't be self-serving. You know, 18 to 22 year olds will humble you very quickly. (laughs) If you come in thinking that you've got it all figured out, they will find new and exciting ways to make you be like, what in the hell am I doing right now? You know, so if you come in and it's about you and you've got to be the focal point, one, you don't need to be in our business, but two, you're not going to be in it very long. And so, you know, when I do meet coaches that, like I said, are very, you know, they want to talk about what they're passionate in or moving our game forward. Or I love coaches that ask me questions about experience and, okay, like when you were in this phase, what would you suggest? You know, when you're going through this, what would you kind of recommend? Like that lets me know you want to grow and growth is a beautiful thing, but it's very uncomfortable. And so anyone that actively seeks that, well, I want you to be a part of my staff or at least on my short list. Because I know you're going to, one, want to grow yourself, you want to grow my players, and you want to grow the game because you understand the necessity. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please make sure to visit slappingglass.com for more information on the free newsletter, Slapping Glass Plus, and much more. Have a great week coaching, and we'll see you next time on Slapping Glass. Do we have a name yet for this thing? I have like slapping backboard. <laughs> slapping glass. <laughs> slapping glass. That's kind of funny. I like that. That's good. Let's roll. <laughs> slapping glass.